following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. The Tip of the Cap podcast is brought to you by Stinger Sports. Stinger Sports makes high-quality gear for the player who expects more for their money. Visit them today at www.stingerwoodbats.com and use promo code TIP OF THE CAP, all one word, for 10% off your next order. Stinger Sports. Look great. Feel great. Play great. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to a brand new episode of Tip of the Cap Podcast. I am Derek Jaws, and I am here today flying solo, trying to get a couple people signed up here and figured out for uh, times to be on the show. And uh, so far this week didn't work out, but looking looking good for next week. So hopefully I'll have a guest with me next time you hear me. Until then, uh, I am here. I'm back from uh, the, the long week that led up to me doing the Hilbert Duville game, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, a great game between two two solid teams there, and something I had a lot of fun doing. I wish I could do more. Uh, unfortunately, my work schedule will not allow that as of right now. Uh, however, if anybody's listening to this and is in the Western New York area, has a college game that they would like to be covered, uh, send me your schedules. I will see what I can do to get out there and help you guys out in any way I can. Um, he said that was a lot of fun. I had a, had a good time doing it. Figured out a few uh, few issues and kinks that I had from. Last summer when I did the uh, 14U game out at Sal Magley with Mr. Austin Kelm joining me on uh, play-by-play there. And, you know, a little little bit smoother of a ride this time, even if, uh, even if some people had an issue with the stream. It was still a lot of fun, and I've heard uh, a, lot of, a lot of positive feedback on that. So if you tuned into that, I appreciate that, and I really thank you for it. Um, and outside of that, I am here to talk today about just... Some of the this is going to be like another state of the game of baseball uh, episode, but it's it's going to be a little bit different than the last one. So the last one I sat down and talked about you know the amount of teams and leagues and you know whatever in the area and the kind of the concept that there's very, very you know there's a ton of teams there's so many but there's you know very very few that are kind of the cream of the crop and you know, we live in an interesting time in the game of baseball right now. Um, there's a lot of rule changes going on. There's a lot of different philosophies that are coming out, whether you're a metrics guy, not a metrics guy. If you like the data, you don't like the data, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm that person. If you if you listen to me, I'm the person that, you know, I, I like the data, but I don't live and die by the data. Um, you know, we were I was talking I was having this conversation earlier this actually earlier, early last week that you can have a kid who's got a really, really pretty swing and isn't a good hitter, and you can have a guy who's a great hitter that who just has the ugliest swing you've ever seen. Um, you know, for every guy who's a picture perfect, you should do it this way, there's a Hunter Pence who just looks goofy and awkward and gets it done. So, you know, you know, there's a, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of things you can do, you know, just because a kid's got a high exit velo and a consistent launch angle doesn't mean he's good at putting the barrel on the ball in a game. And just because... A kid's got an ugly swing doesn't necessarily mean he can't get it done when the you know when when the game's on the line. Uh, some other changes we're going through here, you know, their their MLB is testing out uh, further testing robo umpires uh, for balls and strikes, and uh, I don't like that. That's you know that that's a little bit too modern for me because at what point are we just going to say let's you know play a game of MLB the show and go from there? Uh, we saw with a little bit of last year the, you know, whatever robo-umpiring there was in the past. Uh, I don't know if any of it happened last year, but maybe the year before it was. That there were some pitches that were that robo-ump called strikes that you, when you watched and looked at, like, any baseball guy goes, there's no way. That ball is low, away, and unhittable. And robo-ump said it was a strike. 
despite the fact that nobody in the game of baseball is like you know not even like not even the guys that are like pitchers guys were like that was a strike um there's also some rule changes that are that are coming out the um bigger bases comes to mind which i'm intrigued to see some of that they the idea behind it is by you know increasing the size of the base that you're going to impact that split section that's split second play that you know the infield single will be more prevalent all right i apologize there i hit the uh, pause button on the record here because the fire hall behind my house uh, runs their siren at noon every day and i forgot to check the clock before i hit the record button so but yeah increasing the size of the bases they're saying will uh increase infield singles and uh stolen base efficiency and uh they're also considering doing limitations on number of pickoff moves that you know you are allowed to and then the third one if you don't get the out would be a balk um you know and that's some rate of play stuff they're also looking at you know instituting rules to limit or prohibit the shift which i don't know my my idea there is if you want to put a shift on me i better learn to go the other way uh that's that's you know you want to beat the shift hit it where they're not you know that's that's the general concept of hitting a baseball is to put it where people aren't standing and if you want to put all the people on one side of the field i'll do my best to go the other way uh and you know we've seen guys like dave ortiz you know lay down a bunt to third and get a double out of it because nobody's over there so he pushes pushes a heart a stiff bunt toward third it gets past the bag and just kind of keeps rolling and by the time somebody gets to it he's you know trotting into second base so there's ways to beat it. There's ways around it. I don't know if ruling against it is necessarily a thing. Maybe limiting the number of people on the on each side of second base might be the move. Like, I but that that gets tough, you know. And I I I would like to see the guys ranging to make the play. If you know normally there'd be three infielders on one side of second base, and now there can only be two, and the other guy has to be on the you know let's say the shift is to for a lefty. The shortstop's got to be on the shortstop side of second base, and he's got a range to make a play. Or maybe you put your second baseman in a little bit different position, something like that. I might be okay with that. But full limiting of shifts doesn't seem like the move. Uh, you know, It's one of those things that because a defense works so well, uh, you know, the answer would be learn how to beat that defense, in my opinion. Um, you know, the, the, the base size change is, is interesting. I... I don't know, you know, because when you measure out a field, the 90 feet is from the point of the plate to the front of the bag. So would making the base bigger, like that's still 90 feet, right? Like the base being bigger doesn't change that 90 feet. So I don't know how you're really it would make infield singles tougher, in my opinion. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking that. Maybe maybe they make the adjustment to leave, you know, you measure it to the front of a normal size base and then put a bigger base in there. So it shortens that distance too. I I don't know. Uh, that would be interesting to me, but you know, we're, like we're living in this in, in, in a weird tumultuous world where we're trying to talk about what is going to get kids more involved in the game and what's going to get kids to like the game more and you know more excitement, less strikeouts. All of those things are part of it, and you know, another part of it comes down to us as coaches. And I can tell you from personal experience, I I looked at becoming a coach for the first time when I was 18 um I just stopped playing college football was going to a school that did not have a baseball team and was like you know what this is something I would really like to do 
And I got into it thanks to uh, a local facility and organization, and it's something I have never looked back on. And part of part of what I wanted to be when I became a coach was I wanted to be the coach that I felt I was never lucky enough to play for, uh, the guy who cared, the guy who cared about his players more than he cared about the wins, the losses, the ego, so on and so forth. And I would like to think that I've done a fairly decent job at that. Uh, you know, there's always room for improvement, always room for ways to be better and you know just keep growing as a person as an, as a coach but you know and I'm I can't speak for everybody and why they get into coaching some guys are called called to it drawn to it some guys get into it because their kids play and they want to coach their kids stuff like that and I, whatever your why is I'm not here to discuss that um you know we're we're coming out of one of the weirdest and wildest times in modern history uh I don't think anybody can argue the fact that this this pandemic that was you know we're a full year into two weeks to flatten the curve and s- schools are not back to even remotely close to normal um you know these kids have been cooped up at home i know more and more and more they're getting out uh last summer a lot of travel ball was played at least locally uh, there wasn't a lot of traveling going on a lot of out-of-state stuff because of the state of the state of the world at the time but you know these kids for the most part have been cooped up at home especially coming out of this winter now and you know things aren't open there's there's businesses that have closed down there's events that aren't going on and you know things that kids even even when your uh local facilities are open capacity is limited or at least it's supposed to be and you know that means that there's not as much i mean i remember you know working at uh it's called the athlete factory now over the years there were there used to be kids that would sign up for five half hour uh blocks a night and they'd be there six days a week five days during the week you know, one of those days being an extra team practice, four days being training sessions and infields and clinics and stuff like that, and then their team practice on weekends. And now, like, it's one kid per batting cage. It's, you know, four kids in the infield, not eight. It's, you know, only two mounds can be in use at a time, stuff like that, you know, and just capacity limitations and so on and so forth. There's just less and less for these kids to do. Schools don't really have an idea, any idea how to handle these situations. You can't really blame them for it. We've never seen this before. Um, you know, this, this has never been something that we've, we've experienced where how do we keep these kids safe, but increase their education. And from some of the things I know from, you know, spending some time talking to teachers and people who are in the academic realm, some of it isn't being handled well, but that's not my place to speak. You know, I don't agree with some of it, but again, it's not my realm. It's not my world. I can tell you that uh, the people I know are not happy with the way things are going down. But again, that's that would be for them to speak on, not me. And, you know, but, but at the same time, you can't really blame the schools and the, the decisions they're making. We've never seen something like this. You know, we've never seen a situation where kids can't be in in the classroom or can't be doing things in large groups. And some, you know, you know, parents opting to keep their kids home to keep their kids safe and stuff like that. And, you know, we, we've never seen something like this. We've never even seen anything close to it. And the thing that that breeds to is these is some of these kids have no relief from bad situations, you know. And as, and as coaches and as adults, we don't always know the intricacies of what's going on at home. Uh, we know probably some of it. We can see some of it. We can hear some of it. But for the most part, like we don't know the extremes that some of some of these home life situations go to, and that can be really tough. And, you know, when you look at these things, 
there's we never know the struggle that that people are going through in their personal lives off the field outside the locker room and here in the baseball world and I put a tweet out about this a couple days ago um and basically all it said was that sports saves lives athletics save lives and it basically you don't know how much relief a kid could get just by getting out of his house for an hour to go take batting practice or to go shoot a ball at a net on the lacrosse field or go throw the football around even if it's into a net on the turf somewhere you know whatever it may be like that may be the only sanctuary that a young athlete gets from what could potentially be a bad situation and I can tell you a young man that I coached when he was 13 years old um, it was in my third year as a, as a coach uh, this young man he was from the city and you know his his family supported the hell out of him and he was a very talented both football and baseball player and uh, knowing him he also probably was pretty damn good on the basketball court too and this kid ended up getting uh, he only played for me for the year for the one year and some of that had to do with you know economic issues and he ended up playing through high school I'm not 100% sure if when or where he went to college uh, and if he was able to play a sport in college but this young man used the stuff that he learned as an athlete through all three sports through the years and years of playing and applied it to opening a business and he opened a business downtown and a lot of it is you know clothing and shoes and men's fashion stuff like that and he put a thing up the other day basically talking about how how tough it can be growing up in the type of situation he grew up in and it had nothing to do with his family his family supported him they loved him I you know his dad was one of my favorite people to see at, at our games you know he was always always loud always cheering us on always you know you know he, he was a big time hype man for us and I loved it and you know but this kid you know he said you know oh you know here's the general gist was you know one of the older guys on the streets would say like wouldn't let you get into what he referred to as the dope or what the post referred to as a, as the dope game and said you know you're too good for this and you know if they needed something you know they'd slip them a couple bucks with no debt to be repaid if they you know played well on, on the field or on the court they'd slip them a couple bucks with no debt to repay but the it, you know the understanding was that there was absolutely a debt to be repaid and you know basically saying that you know, he was he was fortunate enough to have a supportive family and you know to learn things through athletics that took him to great places to not get stuck in that world but it, he now sees it as his responsibility to go back to that world and make it better you know to to basically say how you know to turn your side hustle into a legitimate business into a legitimate brand stuff like that and it, it was really interesting and, and awesome to read and and he, he attributed a lot of it to what he did through sports what he did to through athletics and some of the doors that were open because people wouldn't let him slide into that world and in down into those into that area and, that, and that's one simple example i mean you know, here's a kid who, for the most part, as best as you know anyone could tell, had a good home life, had a you know had 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 a family that loved him and supported him, and you know, 
one one slip up, one wrong move, one conversation with the wrong person who didn't look out for him, and he may not be in that situation. And that's all too common. That's all too something that happens all too often. And I, I think as coaches, sometimes we lose track of that stuff. We lose track of the kids that you don't know how much you helped or hurt. And you know, it, it's one thing to stand around, have you know, have a pop with with, with a coach, and you know, as as friends of mine lovingly refer to them, and have, you know, have a coaches, you know, have a coaches meeting, and you know, discuss things, discuss playing time and personnel and things like that. But what's starting to happen now, and and this, you know, we if you listen to some of the other stuff that I do uh, on the, we we did a network sports talk show episode about fandom, the good and the bad of it, and we talked about social media and how it's basically given a megaphone to negativity. And if you if you look through baseball Twitter or hitting Twitter, catching Twitter, pitching Twitter, it's not hard to find just savage toxicity. And, you know, I sit here and I talk about this and I I can tell you that I have not only taken part in some of it, which I am not happy about, and I have tried to do much, much better about not being dragged into but I've also been a, a victim of it, and I know how it has affected me at times, and how it's come across. And you know, my you know, God God bless my girlfriend dealing with all the baseball stuff that I do on top of the two or three other podcasts and everything else. You know, she she's seen it where she can just see the look on my face, like what's wrong, and well, X Y and Z, and like you know, and I I can tell you the the block button has been my my best friend because I do, I just don't want to see this stuff anymore, so. The like I sit here and I think about that and what we're putting out as coaches as you know, whether it's from your personal Twitter account or your team program, whatever's Twitter account, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it may be, our, our players see this and whether it, it may not even be your player, but a player who was considering playing for you or a player who is, you know, who played for you in the past. And, you know, maybe maybe they look back and say, like, hey, like. I really look up to this guy and now I'm watching him just go on this bash session of someone or something and like maybe that triggers a response of like you know that's what it's like when I, I maybe it's maybe it triggers something that goes on at home maybe it triggers something that they're dealing with at school maybe they see a guy that's supposed to be a role model a guy that's supposed to be a somebody a, a pillar of the community we'll call it and maybe that kid gets picked on at school and now he sees his coach or somebody that he knows and respects doing the same type of stuff to somebody else. What's that kid going to think? What's that kid like, oh, this doesn't get better. This still happens. And, oh, there's a guy who, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be supposed to be looking up to and modeling myself after and he's doing these things like. And again, somebody that I'm 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 supposed to be learning from and either you're teaching a bad thing, something that we, we don't want our kids to be doing. You know, it, I, and I look at it this way. If you if you were to read some of the things that people put out and you saw your son or daughter or one of your players doing that, what would you say? And if the answer is anything less than that's unacceptable, then why are you doing it? And it's something that I've tried to be really, really good about. And really, you know, have hopefully gotten a lot better about 
And it's just one of those things that we just need to be better. All right, guys. So I actually have a a, a first time ever uh, 20 minutes into an episode and I have a guest joining me now. Uh, I'm sitting in my kitchen recording this episode, talking about everything that you've heard to this point. And my loving and amazing girlfriend, Ali Yelich, who is a master's candidate at UB, and she's going into she's working as a social work master's degree and wants to stem that into working with athletes in a way, overheard what I was talking about and said, huh, you should have let me in on this. And I said, okay, come on in, sit down. So here we are. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, returning to Tip of the Cap podcast is Miss Allison Yelich. Allie, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Uh, got to turn your mic- microphone on. Oh, I'll turn your microphone volume up. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. There we go. Minor <laughs> technical difficulty in the middle of an episode. Uh, so I was sitting here talking about how, as coaches, we may not know about like what's going on at home and how some of the things we say and do may trigger things. And could you lend some, drop some knowledge on us about how things can trigger trauma response or how things that we do could trigger things in other people to in, in ways we may not think of. Absolutely. So trauma is a really interesting animal, um, which I know we kind of talked about this a little bit the other night where you and I can live parallel lives and something that we both experience, like even just getting in trouble, like let's say we get in trouble in school together, our teacher yells at us and you walk away just fine. But I walk away traumatized from that experience in some regard, like trauma can be um, trauma can be described as what we call little T or big T. So something like that experience with a a teacher um, might be a little T. It's not necessarily like intensive trauma that you think of when you think of like PTSD victims and, um, you know, people returning from war or people who have instances of very significant abuse in their life those are those are things that we would consider big t um and what's really fun and interesting about trauma and i say fun in like kind of a sarcastic sense is that like not everyone has a level of awareness as to what their trauma responses are or like what's going on in their life um especially kids kids are very resilient um tend to do better with managing trauma. However, um, it all kind of stems from how, how we're raised and our experiences in the world around us. Um, it's, it's a mix of, you know, genetics and, and, um, our environment and kids just don't have that self-awareness that an adult might have. So you as the adult have to be better, right? That that's our responsibility. Absolutely. And I mean, we can talk even some, some personal stuff here. So like, we've been together for four years and early in our relationship, there were things like if I screwed up something cooking, truth be told friends, I'm not a great cook. <laughs> I can cook. I do okay, but I'm not great at it. So I would screw something up cooking and I would have an immediate response of, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm such an idiot. And like a very self disparaging thing. And Allie would look at me like, why? Well, it's because in, in a past relationship, that was something that would cause a huge fight in my household. And you know, that that's something that like looking back, I'm like, Really? Because I, I overcooked the meat a little bit because I got distracted doing laundry at the same time. Like, and I, that was my reaction. Like, and we don't know and, or realize how these things happen. And it can be something as simple as a kid screws up in practice and you bark at him a little bit. 
God knows I, I, I can bark from time to time. What I don't know is maybe the kid I'm barking at is that if there's two kids screwing off and I bark at both of them, one kid could be like, well, that sucked. I got yelled at. And the other kid could just ruin his whole day because, well, guess what he deals with all day at home? And, exactly. and we don't know that, you know, and that's so, you know, may, maybe barking right off the bat isn't necessary. There is a time and a place for it. I'm not going to be that guy. But, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, being better about the way we react and respond as adults is becoming more and more important. Um, and now talking from uh, you went into social work for a very specific reason. Yeah. And you you want to work with athletes specifically because of some of the things in your life. Um but what makes social work different from, say, psychology? So the way that I kind of describe this, and it's, it's not necessarily a knock on psychology because I was a psychology major in undergrad and I loved my psychology program. I used to actually want to be a neuroscientist uh, or a neurobiologist and um, definitely glad I didn't take that path. However, um, there's, a, there's a time and a place for all of that like science-based approaches. Do I think it's necessarily the most effective when dealing with people? No. Um, And that's kind of why I went for social work. So the difference here is that social work views people in their environment as kind of reciprocal in nature. Um, And and we really work to meet people where they are. Um, So a big tell to that is like the stages of change theory. And essentially it's that like you have to meet people where they are in their willingness to change. So if somebody has depression, anxiety, um, you know, substance use issues, you have to meet them where they're at because if they're not willing to change and they're not willing to challenge the fact that they have a problem or even aware of the fact that they might have a problem, we can't do anything about it. So, um, and that's obviously, you know, that's something that's prevalent in, in, so in psychology as well, but social work really seeks to meet somebody, um, where they're at on, on terms of like different levels of practice. So, um, there's kind of a social justice piece to social work that's really based in policy and community levels of, of support. So what's really nice about sport social work versus sport psychology is that we can look at an individual on an individual level, but also we seek to understand their background and their environment based on their community, the community that they grew up in, whether that be their family, their friends, their school, or the actual physical community that they lived in, as well as the overarching society and systemic issues that are playing a role. So obviously thinking about things like race, um, which is very prevalent in society today, race would be a systemic macro issue that impacts this person's individual community and thus their family and has shaped how they interact with in their own individual world and how they're experiencing life themselves. Does that make sense? It does. Can you, just for the sake of uh, our listeners, I feel like we hear the word systemic a lot in the world and it's often misinterpreted or misunderstood. Could you shed some light on when you say like a systemic issue, what you mean by that and just kind of clarify that as a whole? Yeah. um, It's just kind of like, I'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of phrase this. Systemically, like if we're talking about race or um, misogyny and like issues in that regard, it's just kind of like this culture of 
understanding of how things work and the systems that support that inadvertently. So we might not look at our government or policies or other things um, or even just like the mindsets that we kind of preach to individuals as a culture. Um, We might not look at at those as being inherently racist or misogynist. um, But at the same time, like you can kind of start to peel back the layers of some of the, the political underpinnings to certain approaches to society and just like general mindsets that give way to areas in which things are, are, are racist or. And so I, I think a good way to stem this would be. So at some point there's a, a, a dynamic change with our athletes. So as a high school coach and as a prep, you know, prep age, high, prep age coach, and even as college coaches, we tell kids, you know, stand up for yourself, stand up for your rights, stand up for, for what you believe in. And then they get to a certain level and we tell them, just shut up and play your sport, you big friggin' child. And that that's that seems very, you know, like you go from being a hardworking, dedicated person to being an overpaid baby. And that seems very hard shift and something that, you know, could. And, and that is a very divisive and spicy topic that I don't really feel like peeling <laughs> the onion back on that one. But like that that's a good example. I mean, it is. That's a great example. Systemically, we try to tell pro athletes, know your role, shut your mouth, play your game and collect your paycheck. Right. Until that point, we tell them you have a voice. You're you're you know, use your platform. You know, be a leader. Be be the, be the, you know, the, the image of change in the world. In some regards. Yeah, I think that it starts to become more of a problem once you get to college, because there's this whole issue with. Do college athletes deserve to be paid for their name and their likeness? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot that kind of goes into it. It, it, I feel like money kind of muddles the situation a lot. um, And that kind of brings to light some of the inequalities drives us right back into it and and that's that's the only reason i wanted to bring that up was to to give to give life to what you were saying thank you you know uh bring because it's it's easy to hear the word systemic and be like oh here we go because you know (laughs) and and, and again that's that's a toxicity on social media that we see you know it's 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 hard to get a full point across 280 characters it's really easy to get a toxic message across in that absolutely because one needs to be explained the other one is, is is face value um you know, and that you you can say that about clickbait articles. You can say that about everything. And we've we've digressed off of athletics a little bit here, but you know, when if you were, how do you? All right, I'm going to dial back here because I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so, as a as someone looking to work in a social work capacity with athletes, how would you take what you know and try to apply it to athletics in the most general sense you get. I know that's a tough question. Wow, yeah, that's a very loaded question. I know it's a very tough and loaded question. So I think the other thing to consider is that, like I kind of mentioned, there's there's three different levels of practice when it comes to social work. There's micro, which is an individual level, meso, like I mentioned, which is community, and macro, which is like the wider spread, more generic level of practice. Right. And each of them are kind of intertwined. Um, because you can't impact a a macro level of practice without that directly impacting the community and then individuals within that community. Um, so I think that your question is a good question. It's valid. It's fair. But at the same time, like 
there's a lot of different ways that athletics can be impacted on a lot of different levels. So can you give me more of a like? I, I don't know that I can right off the top of my head. And I'm going to apologize because, like, again, this wasn't 100 percent not a planned <laughs> thing. Um, it, it's just a, it's it's an interesting thing to have the. Just the perspective of somebody in this realm uh, on the show here to talk about this this specific topic. So, um, you know, so like I, I was talking about the young man, and I, I and I read you the post yeah. from the young man uh, the other day on Instagram, and you know he he talked about how he now feels responsibility to go back and help where he came from. You know, the, the, and he he put the phrase it. You know, the goal is to get out, not to forget, and. As a social worker or as somebody in that realm, what advice would you give for somebody looking to do that to help their community that they've thrived out of? Again, I know I'm asking hard questions. I'm trying to do this on the fly. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I think that it's just a very individual experience. I think the ways that he's impacting his community already is is kind of a doing that. Um and I, I think, like I said, it, it's very individualized. Like he has this goal that he wants to, um, you said he's open in like a clothing shop, right? Like yes. that's, if that's, you know, his realm and that's where he feels he can give back, like that's, that's great. I think also advocacy efforts and being able to kind of stand up for yourself, but stand up for your community is also a really great way to kind of share your story and all and provide the support that you feel like your community needs. Um, but it all really comes down to what we can each individually do and how we can individually impact our community. Well, and the, the other cool thing is, and I, 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 I came to this as you were talking, um, you know, he, he does factually provide a role model type situation there. Right. Like, hey, I was a kid. Here's where I grew up. Here's where I was from. And here's what I'm doing. You know, you don't have to take this road. You don't have to take you don't have to take the exact road I I took, but you definitely don't have to go down the road that's going to get you where that dude is who's 40 years older than you and doing the same thing. Right. And I mean, he's even he's not only setting a role model for the people within his community that he wants to impact and like provide a good example to, but he's also raising awareness outside of his community for people who don't really understand what that life is like. Absolutely. And, and I can tell you factually that happened with me. Like when I read his post and I read all that, like I never thought when I coached this kid, I, it never even crossed my mind. You know, 20 year old me never even remotely thought about like, hey, what's this kid dealing with at home? What's this kid dealing with when he's not at school and not at my practice? I think it's important to recognize that I mean, how many kids do you have on a team at a given time? Uh, between 14 and 20, depending on the year. Right. So you're inherently responsible for 20 different kids and all of the things that they're experiencing. Like that's that's a hard that's a hard thing to kind of sell to a coach. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you do have to be somewhat aware of, of what's going on and being aware and also being like constantly thinking about like what's going on in their life is, is a different kind of it, it's different it's, roles. It, and, it's, and it's a different kind of coaching too. I mean, that's, you know, we're, we are far well and beyond the days of the X's and O's of the game right. being the sole purpose of being a coach. 
you know, and, and it was uh, when I talked at the top of the show about why I got into coaching and wanted to be the type of coach I never got the chance to play for, you know, and I, I, I had games when I was younger that I was afraid to go home after. Not because I, not, not, not afraid, but dreaded going home because I knew the, you know, it was the, well, what the hell were you doing there? What the hell? Why didn't you hit that ball? Like that type of thing. Or why'd you miss that block type thing? And it, it, it sucked. I didn't have a single coach that ever asked about anything like that or ever cared. It was, well, you're not at home anymore, son. Let's go get to work. And I can tell you a few years back, and I've told you this story. I had, we had a young man sit in our office at one point, and he was having a rough year. He, he was having a rough season. He was supposed to be a cornerstone for us and was having a rough go. And we called him in to be like, dude, like you just had a meltdown at a coach on the field. What is the deal? And we were really leaning toward like, hey, man, maybe it's time to turn your stuff in. And he broke down to us and basically told us like half of my family's on vacation and the other half hasn't been home in a week. I, I've eaten stale pizza for three meals a day for the last four days. And that's a perfect example of not looking at someone as what the hell's wrong with you, but what's going on and how can we help? Yeah. Yeah. And it's what's going on. How can we help? And like getting to the underlying. And, and that's what the thing I think I appreciate about like learning along with you at times. Like when I hear yeah, your, you have an honorary social work degree when I graduate in May. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, hearing like the conversations and actually I'm. Stop me if you don't want me to, to, to say this, but like we, I was overhearing one of your lectures and one of your professors said something to the effect of, what do you feel about this type of, I believe it was rehabilitative counseling, mm-hmm. where you're trying to fix, like, fix the issue instead of just help the issue? Mm-hmm. Um, and almost everyone in your class was like, no, I, like, we want to fix it. Like, we want this person to get better. And they were like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't agree, but uh, you know, that, that's the cool part about this. We don't have to agree. And yeah, it's like, called the recovery movement. There we go. <laughs> and that's why it's an only an honorary degree. Not, not, well, I don't actually have to <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that you look at and you're like, wait a minute. Like, you don't want to fix the problem? What, what do you mean you don't want to fix the problem? And it's one of the things I, I appreciate about social work is, like, you're treating the person. Yeah. Like, like you're not looking at, this, at a human being with emotions and feelings and, you know, stuff going on outside of what you even know, even in your realm, and saying... You're a science project. Yeah. You're looking at we're not like all you're just, a person. Yeah. We're not all just meant to perform optimally all the time. It impacts everything in our lives. Our, the things that are going on around us in our environment, in our genetics, and all of it impacts everything. It impacts relationships. It impacts work. It impacts school. It impacts sports. So it's all interconnected. And ultimately, we have to look at the individual and, and what's going on for them to help them the best that we can. And I think when when we look at things like athletics, we have to consider performance based on the things that are happening at home and the things that are happening for these kids. And whether that be at school or home or just on an individual level, um, maybe even genetically, you yeah. know? And, and, you know, and, and that's – that's a great point to stem into, you know, as as a coach, you know, your 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 job at the end of the day does generally revolve around, you know, in, in, the, in the high school, in the scholastic level, collegiate level, it it revolves around wins and losses. But I can tell you, you can be one of the winningest coaches in history and have people hate you. And that doesn't sound like a very fulfilling career. 
because when it's done, what do you have left? A bunch, sure. a bunch of dusty trophies. Or yeah. how else can how can you achieve more wins by supporting your your team? I, I I can tell you, you know, and this is something that from the time that I started coaching, and it, this comes from you know we and we talk about this all the time with the two two high schools we went to. You went to Depew, I went to Lancaster. There's a very deep, prideful tradition at both schools. Um, very deep rival. And the, the a deep rivalry, but like speaking you know, to the similarities of them, like that deep prideful tradition, absolutely, like is is a big deal. And I've I've carried that with me in my coaching of like, listen, man, like whether it's a high school baseball team, a college or a college prep team, twelve U team, whatever it is, like you may not like the dude standing next to you, but and I don't always like my sister, but it doesn't mean we're not family. You know, it doesn't mean that I don't have her back. You know, and, and I've I've tried to carry that same type of culture into coaching and say, like, you know what? You may not like the dude playing first base, but uh, guess who's got to be there for you to dig the ball out of the dirt when you throw it there? You know, you may not like your catcher, but guess what? He's still got to catch for you. And, you know, and, and that comes to an understanding of the person as a, at a deeper level and being able to, you know, resolve conflicts and so on and so forth. And, you know, I, I've had I've had I've been lucky enough to have players and teams that have bought in and. Guys that I, I coached for a year at thirteen, I saw I see I saw last Monday night. I played football against the kid, and it was just ironic that I saw the post that day and then saw him that night. And he came up to me and gave me a huge hug. That to me is worth more than any trophy, and that to me is why, like the why of coaching, and that's what that that's what the why should be, would be to to be there for these kids in a way that even if you touch their lives for a year, you touch their lives in a positive way. And that, you know, comes to the, the, what I wanted to round out the episode with of being a better as a coach, being a better as a leader and just being better as a whole. Um, you know, and I'm sure you can speak to this on a social work level and some of the things that you just simply learn about and some of the, the nastiness that's out there and some of the things that you may have to end up dealing with going into your career. And I can talk about it from my experience on like as a coach and in the sporting realm, um, just there's so much negativity. There's so much toxicity out there that the world needs more better people and not just more better people, but more better people willing to stand and take and, and you know, and fight for the good, for the light, for the positive out there and show the world that, you know, there is some good news. Um, you know, so it's, I don't really know where to go from here at this point. Like th- this has been a choppy episode and like, um, yeah, that's partially my fault. Well, I listen, I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, is there at, at this point, is there anything else you'd like to comment on? Anything you heard me say earlier that you were like, Hey, I have a thing to say about that. Um, anything along those lines? No, I don't think so. I feel like this, I mean, despite the fact that it's been kind of choppy, like we've been able to effectively hit some really important parts of, how to be a better coach, be a better role model and like what that looks like and, and what that means for, for our athletes. I, I think the under, uh, like a big understanding just comes from, you know, the fact that when you put something out on social media, that's where these kids live these days. I mean, I'm, I'm in my thirties, you're in your twenties. And like, I was in the generation that Facebook first started. Like we, we all grew up with MySpace at our top eight and that was like the biggest thing you had to worry about on social <laughs> media. Um, you know, but then there's, you know, th- then you got Facebook. And at the time, Facebook, you did, needed a .edu email to get it, right? Because it was only for college kids. Now everybody's got it. 
and everyone's got Twitter and everyone's got Facebook and everyone's got Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and God knows what the next one's going to be. And anytime we as coaches or we as adults put things out there, we don't know who can see that. We don't know who's, whose desk that's going to come across. And that desk may be of some 14-year-old impressionable kid that like looks forward to seeing you as, you know, in whatever realm, be it in a social work realm or a professional realm or a coaching realm or a teaching realm or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden you put something out there that paints you in a light that they look and say like, wait a minute, he's doing that and saying that. And like, I, I don't know. I, I got a brother that's like six years older than me. And that's what he, that's how he talks, treats me. And that really, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go there anymore. And guess what? Sport doesn't save lives that way. It definitely does not. And that's how you bring an episode full circle out of the back pocket, off the seat of your ass. So, Miss Yelich, I appreciate you joining me, even if it was halfway through. <laughs> uh, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on again. And uh, I look forward to further discussions with you about such topics in the future. Yeah, can't wait. Thanks. Hi, I'm young Andrew Wentz. My dream is to be a podcaster on an awesome network talking about random topics and just having fun. Whoa, what's that beam of light? Hey, young Andrew Lenz. It's me, Andrew Lenz from the future, telling you that your dream is going to come true. What? No way! Yeah, you're going to have an awesome podcast called Let's Talk But No Politics, okay? And new episodes come out every Sunday on... PSA!